We're going to go back to James chapter 2 today and our study of the idea that faith works. God has called all who have placed their faith in him to live new life in him. And that's the whole idea behind James, that we do the things that God has called us to do. And so throughout James chapter 2, we we examine this idea of showing partiality, favoritism, and how that doesn't line up with who God is, um, and instead embraces the idea of the world's theology. And then it doesn't line up with the law of God that God has called us to live in, the law of liberty. We talked about that, unpacked that term a little bit last week. And today, we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, and we're going to talk about this idea of dead faith. James writes in James 2, starting verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word today and examine these things that you have written here for us. We pass now that you would challenge our hearts today. That you would help us to see that within the scriptures, what we find here is that there is clear evidence in the life of one who truly follows the Lord. And no, that doesn't mean that that the life is a perfect life, but one that is always seeking to grow and change. And today, would you awaken our cold hearts? Would you stir those things within us that we have held on to for so long? And would you help us to lay those things on the altar of following you? Lord, if there is one who hears this message today who doesn't know you as Savior, would you help them to see that that just merely assenting to the things of God isn't placing faith in God, but instead their faith is dead? And would you show them the life that Jesus Christ offers, a life that is beyond compare? We ask that you would get the honor and the glory for all that's said here today. your name we pray. Amen. As you go through life, the evidence that you see around you, if followed correctly, will often lead you to correct conclusions. Let me give you an example. If you walked into my house on any given day, you would have all the pieces that you need to understand that we have three small children that live in our home. The small, unorganized boots in the boot tray as you walk in the door the plethora of children's literature in the living room, the myriad of kids' toys around our home, and the unending mountain of miniature human-sized laundry would lead you right to this fact. And depending on when you come, you wouldn't be able to walk in the door because that all would be in your way. The evidence of our lifestyle and the way that we go about our daily lives leads us to conclusions about our spiritual status. True faith in Jesus Christ evidences itself in our lives by our actions. Conversely, inaction and the absence of godly works is the evidence 
of dead, or really, a better way to say it maybe is non-existent faith. That is James's concern in this passage of his letter that we consider today. And what we see here in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, is that because godly works are the necessary evidence of faith, an absence of these works indicates a major problem. You cannot, James says, you cannot separate these things. And throughout his letter, he's made this case time after time after time. And now he just digs in and plainly says it, that if your faith, if you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, but there are no works in your life that show that faith, then that faith is dead. And if we look at our lives and honestly assess what God is is doing in our hearts and honestly assess how we feel about that and what we do, and we're going to talk about the balance of, you know, we're not just doing works here. We should be able to tell by those things where we are even in our spiritual lives and walks. So let's jump right in and see in verse 14, in this idea of dead faith, James first talks about an unsubstantiated faith. James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone has faith but does not have works? Really what James is seeking to do here as he jumps right in is make the works connection between works and faith. Is it possible to truly have faith? That is, when we use the word faith, we're talking about full and complete trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Is it possible to have this kind of relationship with God and have no works of it in our lives? James says, what profit is it? Or maybe more literally, what advantage is it for a person who claims he has faith but doesn't have the works that back it up? One commentator said, what we do reveals who we are. Very simply, the works of a person either substantiate their claims of faith or they don't. It's one thing, James says, to claim to believe in God for salvation. It's another to live it. And I don't know exactly the, the, the entire culture of Michigan, but I mean, where I grew up, everybody and their mom went to church, right? I remember going out as a teen, and, and we'd make visits on Tuesday nights, and we'd knock on doors, and everybody had a church they went to. Does that mean that everybody knew the Lord? Well, no. There's a difference, Right? The difference between saying you know God and actually with our lives proving that. And James, here in, 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 in his setting, he's dealing with a Jewish audience. James is dealing with what I call a pendulum swing. Think about this. That for years and years, I mean hundreds of years, the religion of Israel has been founded on works. Specifically, think about the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel. That they, over and over again, have added to the law of God and used works as a means of bettering themselves before others. In fact, Jesus himself observed this in Matthew 23, verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. What did these religious leaders do? They took the law of God and they twisted it. They used it for their own advantages. They added their own traditions to it. And so works played a huge role in the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they would claim 
that if you don't look like us, if you don't do the things that we do, you're not right with God. Here's the problem. The works didn't save them. The things that God required in the law were to show how sinful they were and how much they needed a Savior. But here's for the pendulum. That's been going on for hundreds of years. That leaves a really bitter taste in your mouth, right? These men who, who, who were supposed to be leading people closer to God were in fact leading people away from God. And so now, here comes Jesus Christ and faith in him, and, and it goes to the other side. That you don't need any of that for salvation, which is true. But what comes after that? You know what? You don't need any of that at all. You just, just place your faith in God and go about your life and you'll be fine. It's kind of this, what I call an easy believism mentality. Just say that you believe in Jesus Christ and, and you're good. Nothing need change in your life as long as you say you believe in God and in Jesus Christ. As long as you know the right answers to the questions, you're, you're okay. But no matter how strongly or how loudly that belief is proclaimed, what you do after that confession of faith shows what truly happened in your life. You can say over and over and over again one thing, but your life can tell a completely different story. The truly converted life can't help but begin to change. And if one has truly been freed by Jesus Christ to do the works of God in God's strength, the works of God will be done in that person's life. We talked about that a little bit last week with the law of liberty. Now, of course, these don't happen all at once, but the tenor of one's life begins to shift, and this was seen time and again in Scripture. Let me just point you this, this morning to the man we, we read about in our Scripture reading, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a most sinful man. He was a tax collector. And okay, Now, being a tax collector didn't make him sinful. All right? I know that we wish that was the case. right? He was a sinner who was a tax collector, and that made his tax collecting even worse, that he cheated his, his fellow countrymen out of money. And one day, he meets Jesus, and he comes to a saving relationship with him. You know what we don't have recorded? We don't have the sinner's prayer of Zacchaeus recorded in Scripture. We don't have the words that he said. You know what we have recorded? We have recorded what happened after his life changed. After the object of Zacchaeus' faith changed, this is what he says. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was no longer lost, but found. Zacchaeus no longer trusted in himself and his works, but in Jesus Christ. And because of that faith, his actions began to change. Paul saw the same thing occur in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The service that these changed lives engaged in did not earn them salvation, but it proved what had occurred in their lives. 
To one who claims he knows Christ as Savior but doesn't live it, James has some very sobering words in this passage. Because a changed life will will begin to engage in the things of God. In fact, James says at the end of verse 14 that one whose life doesn't back it up lacks salvation. He says, can faith save him? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, is supposed to be yes, that, 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 that faith cannot, or no, that faith can't save him. And it's a little confusing when we read it at first because I really feel like um, there's, to understand this, there's a word that's lacking here. Because we think, well, of course, faith is what saves us, right? But really what James is saying here, this is better translated, can that faith save him? What do we mean by that? Can proclaimed faith alone that shows no true change really save a person? And James's implied answer here is no. That faith doesn't save a person. True faith of the heart comes out in our lives, it is not merely lip service. It's not praying this prayer that if you say the right words, then God will let you into heaven. If you say the, 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 the heavenly password, then you're in the club. It's confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's placing your complete trust in him and him changing your life. When Jesus Christ is not present, something is missing from our lives, and it is impossible to rest securely in Christ if you never see Christ working in your life. And so when no, when no work of Jesus is evident in our lives, there should be some questions that are raised. Because faith in Jesus isn't intellectual assent. Faith in Jesus is life transformation. God is in the business of changing lives. And if you know God, he is changing your life. I love it. I love the way Warren Wiersbe, one commentator, wrote this. Beware of mere intellectual faith. No man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come in contact with a 220-volt wire and remain the same. If you went out... To, to where there was raw electricity coming out of a building and you grabbed that wire and held on, it would change your personality real fast. Some of us have curly hair to show that, okay? God's change is the same way. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not the same. There should be a, a, a palpable difference in your life. There should be uh, the way you go about your daily business should change. Why? Because I know Jesus Christ. Because now I, I don't have to serve myself. I can do the things that God has called me to do with his help. And now James illustrates this point further for us with this idea of undemonstrated faith in verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? What you have here are lifeless words. Here is a picture of a fellow Christian. James is speaking to those who who proclaim to know Jesus Christ. So he says, if you have a fellow believer who comes to you and and they're in great distress, they're without adequate clothing and food. The word naked here 
does not mean completely without clothes, but underclothed. The best way I can think to illustrate it is, think of a guy who lived in the South his entire life and moved to Michigan in the middle of the, of the winter, okay? If you know anybody like that, that's kind of how it is, okay? He doesn't have, they don't have what's necessary, right? They don't, they're lacking proper attire. He doesn't have what's needed to survive whatever conditions they're in. But also they're lacking in food. Again, it doesn't mean they don't have any food, but what they have isn't enough. They're falling short of what we may call normal needs. And at the end of chapter 1, this kind of calls back to us that picture of chapter 1 where James is talking about true religion is that which, which visits or takes care of the orphans and the widows, those who do not have any means to take care of themselves. And James says here to this fellow Christian, a lifeless gesture is made because someone approaches this one with such needs and and wishes them peace and says, be warmed and filled. What good does that do? It's equivalent to saying something like, well, God bless you or, or God take care of you and then walking away. Those words will not warm the body of one who does not have what he needs. Those words will not fill the hungry belly. I don't know if you ever had that experience where you're maybe riding in the car or something, and you're, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, you're cold, you know, I'm cold, and your mom says something like, think warm thoughts. That never works, right? I'm hungry, well, think, think food thoughts, that's not good. I just get hungrier, right? Those words offer to a person, be warm and filled. Peace to you. They don't do anybody any good. That person has not gained any advantage from this encounter. There's no profit to their state. We would look at this person who said this, right? Maybe you're standing there. Let's just put ourselves in that situation. And you look at them and say, do you really think that helped? Do you think that really made a difference in their life? I mean, it's about as helpful as praying for God to meet the needs of others and then forgetting all about it when we say amen. God, would you please help so-and-so? Would you help this? And we say amen, and we don't think about it, right? And we don't think about how, how we maybe could be a part of that. When God gives us the means to help others, most of us would agree we need to help others. Right? If I took a poll right, and said, if God gave you the ability to help somebody, should you help them? We'd say, yeah, we, we should do that. But we must admit, even in this example, we see ourselves. We say things like, hey, let me know if you need anything. And then we hope that they don't need anything. Right? You ever been guilty of that? We, we say, hey, I'll be there for you as long as it's convenient. Right? You know, maybe we should say things like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to come by and I'm going to help you with. Or you know what? I want to do whatever it is for you. I want to, I want to be a help in a ministry. Instead of hoping that someone will meet the need in our lives, we need to take steps to meet needs. Because that's what living out our faith looks like. That's what Christian love and compassion does. That's what this active living faith reflects itself as. First John 4. 317, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
The love of God poured out in the heart of a believer overflows into the lives of those around him. And oh, we think, does that mean we have to pick up every hitchhiker we see on the road? Notice again, both in James and John, who is the primary target here? Fellow Christians. Because that's who we're to minister to first. That's not to say we shouldn't minister to people who, aren't, who don't know the Lord, right? We don't hand out a poll and say, do you know the Lord? Nope, sorry, okay? But first and foremost, our, our obligation is to help those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Serving others in their need is serving the Lord. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. This is a bunch of verses. I didn't want to put it up on the screen today. But I think it's important for us to see this idea. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the judgment that is to come, when he will judge the nations. It's talking about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And in verses 31 through 46, let's read that and then we'll talk about it here for just a minute. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it for one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, the least, one of these you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I mean, so often, how many times in our lives, I mean, even in my own life, you know, we thought, hey, if we would just see Jesus, right, it would be, we would, everybody would get it. We have to understand that when we look around, we minister to the needs of others, we are serving Jesus Christ. When we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are serving him. I know in my own life, this is something I struggle with, Right? Again, I told you earlier, we get so distracted by the things that go on in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, that we think, that's great, just what I need, one, last, one more thing I need to do, right? But instead, we should be consumed with serving one another. We should be consumed with, and why is that? Because we're consumed with serving the Lord. And that's what James is giving a picture of here. And so this is kind of just a, a, a little bit of a, of a side trail here that he takes in this illustration uh, to, to kind of say, hey, this is, this is what serving God looks like. It's serving others that are around us. Supreme love for God helps us show selfless love for others. 
And actions are the key that's here. As James shows, these meaningless words are lifeless. Why are the words lifeless? Be warmed and filled. Because there was nothing that was given to warm and fill. Those words take on a whole different meaning when the clothes and the soup or the whatever it is, the, the help, the need is met, right? Because actions back up what we say. James says, just as those words are lifeless, so is faith without works. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There is lifeless faith here in the life of this one. Proclaimed faith without works backing it up is just as worthless as token words offered to a needy person. That isn't faith, James says, on life support. That is faith that is dead. The true and living God works in, through, and for all believers. His true and living servants then do the same for him. And we have to understand that God is not fooled and God is not mocked. If you claim him to be Lord of your life, that's what should come out in your life. There's a saying I heard growing up, and it it just continues to ring true. Your walk talks, and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What do we mean there? How you live your life says more about what you say. What you do means more than those, those words. Now, are words important? Yes. But our actions show truly what's in our heart. History is littered with those who said good things and never did anything about them. In our own lives, we have run into those who say one thing and do the opposite. If you've ever worked in a a job environment, right, you've, you've probably heard people say all these things. I can do this and I can do that and I can do... But when the rubber meets the road, they can't do any of those things, right? Or you've met... You've met Christians or, 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 or professing Christians say, hey, I go to church, I know the Lord, I, and they live their life like any other lost person you've ever met in your life, and you begin to wonder, right? Because again, you're, you're, trying not to be, you're not trying to take God's place as a judge, but you're at the same time looking for fruit as God told us to look for. Paul was on his way to Rome to stand trial, and he was standing before King Agrippa, And here in King Agrippa, he encountered a man who knew a lot, but did not now truly know Jesus Christ. Acts 26, verses 27 and 28. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Some of the saddest words ever spoken. And again, we don't know the end of Agrippa's story, but... There's a difference between saying you believe and actually believing. Belief is placed in Jesus results in life. And what is the sign of life? Activity is the sign of life. Undemonstrated faith is dead faith because faith always has visible results. And dead faith is also, lastly here, unfulfilled for it does not bring a person to salvation. So James shows us that it's un- unsubstantiated, 
undemonstrated, and lastly, unfulfilled faith. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What you have here is an impossible separation. James presents this conversation that one may have with him on this subject. You ever have those imaginary conversations in your mind? Well, James wrote one out here for us to read. He's anticipating what, what one may say in, in the church that he's writing to, that the people are writing to, that, 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 hey, you know what? You have faith. That's great, James. Or you have, you know, I, 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 don't, I have works. You have works. I have faith. I have faith. I don't need to have any works to go with it. The goal is separation. If we can separate faith from works, then on either side you can live however you want. There really is no difference. As long as my life doesn't have to change, I can continue to sin all day long and never feel any guilt about my sin because I have faith. That's the one side. Now what's on the other side? Well, if I don't need faith in God and I can work my way to heaven, then I just need to balance out what I do, and in the end, I'll be good. Do you see how they they both get you to the same conclusion? They both get you to a life that doesn't reflect God at all, and you can live it however you want. On one side, you're just overemphasizing the spiritual. Hey, you know, as long as you believe, man, it's okay, right? You just do whatever you want as long as you say you believe. On the other side, it's work, 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 work. But you still have room to do the things that you really want to do because you've outworked the bad things, right? But James says you can't separate those things. You can't show your faith without works. You can't prove there's been anything brought about in your heart without God's miraculous change. The work God does in our hearts after salvation proves just that that there has been a great change in your life. God's work in and through us proves to us and to those around us that he truly is at work. And again, I think of this of a picture. I think of, I already used an, elect, an electricity example, so we'll go back there. Think of an electric motor. How does that motor prove that there is electricity present. Well, it turns on and it begins to work. The motor by itself doesn't do the work. It needs an outside source. It needs an outside source of power. You cannot work your way to heaven. You need God's salvation. But what good is a motor that isn't put it to work? When, uh, when my family moved from Atlanta to South Carolina, one of the things that the house we moved into didn't have was a dishwasher. I have three brothers and sisters. The worst nightmare of, of us, you know, college age and down is that we had to wash dishes by hand. Imagine that, right? We had to wash the dishes by hand every night. It was probably the worst thing we could come up with, and that's pretty sad. But you know what my dad bought our family for Christmas? He bought our family a dishwasher. I've never been so excited for an appliance. I, ne- I knew at that moment what it felt like to be middle-aged, okay? <laughs> and I was so excited for this new appliance in our, in our life. But what good is it if you don't turn it on, right? If you don't 
put the dishes in, and you, you don't see that make any difference in your life day by day if you just let it sit idly by. I was going to use the example of a treadmill, but we all know those are there just to hang clothes anyway, and that's what we do with them, right? God saves us to see change affected in our everyday actions. I don't have the verse up on the screen, but I can refer you back to Ephesians 2.10. We are saved to do good works. Agreement with the things of God isn't enough. And James very shockingly tells us this in James 2, 2 verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You can have all the correct doctrine in the world, but without true faith in Jesus Christ, it isn't enough. James references here, again, something that's very familiar with his Jewish audience. He says here, you believe that there is one God. He is referencing what's known as the Shema. The Shema was, was a prayer that was prayed every day by the Jews. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And here's the shocking part. These words that were prayed every day, the Lord our God is one God, you know who agrees with those words? Satan and the demons. Indeed, the demons believe there is one God. Those who do Satan's bidding and Satan himself must believe in the existence of God. For they are, they are beings who are created by God and rebelled against him. And this belief that they have in God isn't without results in their own lives. James says that the demons believe and tremble. The word tremble there means to shudder out of great fear. They tremble before Jesus, God's son. Does this mean that demons are saved? The obvious answer is no way, right? Demons are fallen beings who have their end laid out for them because of the rebellion against God. But we see that while Jesus was on earth, in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, there's just one verse that I pulled out. There's, There's a couple more we could go to. It says, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. That's the demon that possessed this man who was speaking to Jesus. He was afraid of the power of God. Does this knowledge of what awaits them save them from this end? No, for they have chosen their path. They will one day suffer because of it. We read this in Matthew 25 earlier, Matthew 25, 41. And he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell will be littered with those who knew the truth and did nothing with it. Faith is not fulfilled until it's placed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and it is seen in our lives through our sanctification. When you don't see spiritual growth in your life, does it bother you? 
Because the question has to be asked. Will true followers of Jesus Christ have times of unfaithfulness, stunted growth, or even regression into sin? What do you think? I believe the answer is yes. If you want to exhibit A, take a guy like Peter, who walked with the Lord, but still resorted to his sin a lot. And he grew in God. Christians do experience times like this. And you know what happens more often than not when a Christian is not obeying the Lord? They begin to have thoughts of doubt about their salvation. Now, this doesn't mean that the security of salvation is lost, okay? Let's just, for just a minute, I just want to park here and talk about, there's two different sides to this, okay? Security of salvation is the objective truth. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, if your faith is in Him alone, you are His forever, period. That does not change. Now, there is a subjective side to that. The subjective side to that is the assurance that you feel as a child of God. And if you and I engage in sin in our lives, and we make it a habit to engage in sin in our lives and ignore what God is trying to do to call us back to himself, then you and I are not going to feel very secure in Jesus Christ. It's just not possible. It's not the way God set it up. If you aren't living for the Lord, you begin to wonder if you belong to the Lord. And that's the way it should be. But you don't have to live wondering if you belong to God. You can know your sins are forgiven. And you can know that every day you are His as you see Him change As you engage with the word of God, acting on what he says, you will live a life assured of your eternity. Faith devoid of works is faith devoid of life. And if your life is devoid of works of faith, and you seem more set on justifying why you don't need those works of faith, then I would tell you you need to examine your faith. Now, let's not take this the other direction. This is not prescribing to a list of someone's rules for the Christian life. Okay? I'm not saying that today, if you look at your life, I don't think you see the things of God. Pastor, could you write out about 25 things I need to do in order to, for God to be godly? I can't help you. I mean, I can tell you what godliness looks like, but where we're going to go is the Scriptures. Because you cannot be right with God by living life according to someone's rules. It's not about a system. It's about the scriptures. The Bible is the basis for all faith and practice for the life of every believer. God's word has to say, has the say no matter how we feel. And there's some things in our lives that even as Christians... It kind of steps on our toes a little bit. We read something or we hear the word of God preached or we begin to meditate on the scriptures and we think, man, that makes me feel really uncomfortable because I'm doing X, Y, Z. And God begins to work on our heart and work on our hearts and work on our hearts. And sometimes we, we, what do we do? We say, no, I don't need to change that. 
No, God, I don't, I don't need to listen to that. God, I don't need, and he continues to work on our hearts. And what he's doing is trying to draw us closer to himself and help us to realize that, that we need to change whatever it is we need to change, no matter how we feel about it, because his word has the final say. And next week, we'll examine two examples that James gives us to this end. James appeals to two Old Testament characters to show us what does living faith look like. Consistent godly action is a sign of life when it comes to faith in God. Dead faith results in no real change, for only complete confidence and humility before God results in God's presence in your life and the change of God taking place. So you must answer this question. Have you placed full and complete faith in Jesus Christ? And do you see that played out in your life? Because faith in Christ results in living for Christ. Again, let's not get it confused. Living, God, doing good things doesn't result in having faith. Faith results in living a godly life. During the 1800s, Crowds were wowed by a man of the name Charles Blondine. This daredevil became the first man in history to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. His trip from the United States to Canada was really unique. Suspended 160 to 270 feet above the waters of Niagara, Blondine would make 17 trips across the tightrope. And he took his act to new heights By adding tricks, he would walk across the tightrope on stilts, he would ride a bicycle, he would go across blindfolded, and he would even carry a stove on his back and cook omelets. He truly understood the art of entertainment. One day, he took a wheelbarrow out on the rope and asked the crowd if they believed that he could take a man across the tightrope in a wheelbarrow. And the story is said that the crowd, longing to see that happen, began to chant, I believe, I believe, I believe. So Charles Blondie looked out in the crowd and picked out a man who was cheering and said, You, sir, get in the wheelbarrow. And the man took off in the other direction. (laughs) Did he believe that Charles Blondie could take a man across the tightrope in a wheelbarrow? Well, he believed he could take someone across the tightrope in the wheelbarrow, just not him. He was not willing to trust Blondine with his life. I would argue he didn't really believe that, right? That is the same with our faith in God. It is not enough to say that you believe God exists. It is not enough to say that you believe that he is who he says he is. You need to truly act on that faith and do something with it. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to humble yourself before him and place your complete trust in him to save you from your sin. Because godly works are the necessary evidence of faith, an absence of these works indicates a major problem. If you know the Lord as your Savior, 
then there is a necessity to act on your faith by living out your new life in Christ. And what does that take? It takes us humbling ourselves before God and submitting to the change that he wants to bring about in our lives. Your life should be full of living for his glory. And by God's grace and by his help, you can live out the law of liberty consistently in your own life. And I'm here to tell you, that all Christians have struggles. All Christians have, have times of hardship and trial and difficulty and, yes, sin. We all have times in our lives where we fail to live as God calls us to live. I am reminded of that on a daily basis in my own life. When you sense this in your life, run to God and his word seeking help and refreshment. Ask him to once again fill you with the freshness of your calling to live out your faith. The evidence proves what's there. No new life shows us there is no faith in Christ. God promises life and help to those who are his. And I get it. Sometimes you have something you struggle with that seems to beat you up over and over and over again. You say, look, I, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior, but I cannot find victory over that. Can I just invite you, that if that's, there's something you're struggling with and you would like to, to get together, to pray together, to look at God's Word together, to, to, to find some help, I would love to be that person to help you. My wife would. There are many other people in this church who, who would love to, to come alongside you. We need that sometimes in our lives. There's no shame in that. I think sometimes what happens, not sometimes, many times what happens, is Satan tells us lies like no one else struggles with that. If you tell someone about this sin, they're going to throw you out of the church. It's not what we're going to do. We are all walking that road of sanctification if we know Jesus Christ. We all need help. We all need prayer. We all need support. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you struggle with that, if you look at your life and you say, I thought I understood what it meant to have a relationship with God, I would love the opportunity to share from God's Word what that means. How you can know for sure. You can walk out of here today knowing you would spend eternity with God. And little by little, every day, we can grow in the knowledge of Him, doing the things He has called us to do, and live in a way that honors and pleases Him, and show living instead of dead faith. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that we find therein to change our lives. Thank you for promising us not just eternity in heaven. Lord, that is far and away the best place that we can spend eternity. But thank you for promising us victory over sin. Thank you for promising to show us to show in us yourself if we know you as Savior. Lord, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts, that you would help us to be humble before you and admit where we struggle, to find grace from your word, to help in time of need. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today wrestling with with their eternity, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them their need of a Savior that you would give them the courage to talk to someone to get that settled today. 
Lord, I pray for Christians that you would help us to be willing to say to you that we want to get rid of sin in our lives, that we want to constantly live out our faith no matter what it takes. Would you be, help us to be willing to lay everything on the altar for you? Lord, that is truly how we can make a difference in a lost and dying and dark world. We ask that you would watch over us now as we leave this place. Would you protect us? May we honor you and glorify you in all said and done this afternoon. In your name we pray. Amen.